Heavenly Father, God, we've been walking through Second Corinthians, three very strong passages of how to be confident in uncertain times. And Lord, today's passage uh, could be a little bit encouraging, but also can be a little bit of a challenge. And Father, I pray that you would encourage where encouragement is needed, you would challenge where challenge is needed. And Lord, I pray that you would speak this message to each and every mind and heart here today. Lord, people need Jesus in this world. And Father, you established your church to be the mouthpieces. And so, Lord, help us to hear from the Apostle Paul in these scriptures today what our role is in all of this. And then not only help us to hear, but Lord, help us to be doers. And so, Father, I pray that you would use, as your scripture talks about, the foolishness of preaching to change hearts and minds. Lord, would you do that in this room this morning? It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we'll be at as we continue just learning about how to be confident in these uncertain times. We've been walking through three chapters, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 4, and 5. And today's the last message in this series. Bill Hybels and Mark Middleberg wrote a book several years ago. They titled it Becoming a Contagious Christian. Their main premise or idea was that we should make Christianity so appealing so that others would irresistibly be drawn to Christ by our example. The book contains a formula that says high potency plus close proximity plus clear communication equals maximum impact. And they went through and explained what does all that mean. But in summary, what they're basically saying is that if we believe in Christ and Christ has made a powerful difference in our lives, and we have a close relationship with unbelievers, people who are not followers of Christ, and if we communicate the gospel clearly, we should effectively be winning a number of people to the Lord and helping many people walk in Jesus Christ. Granted, though, they also made the point that the gospel is not going to appeal to every single person, no matter how contagious we are, Because some people, they have a veil over their faces or their eyes are closed or they just pursue darkness and they actually like darkness more than they like the light. And so sometimes they will never make a decision to come to the cross of Jesus. But the problem is this. Many times we believers make Christianity unattractive through our behavior. Sometimes we can be boring Sometimes we're joyless, sometimes we're hypocritical, sometimes we're negative, sometimes we're complainers. Sometimes what we uh, show others does not show a life that's been demonstrated that Christ has changed our lives. And so the premise in their book was, we've got to be people who live for Christ in such a way that people see that and they say, there's something different about your life. Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said, you're to be salt of the earth. And salt adds flavor to food. In other words, we should add flavor to somebody's life. He said, you are the light of the world. And light attracts things out of darkness. We should have such a glowing light about us as we walk in Christ that those who are in darkness may say, what do you have different? I want what you have. The Bible says that we should in every way make the teaching about God our Savior attractive according to Titus chapter 2. 
And so we come to this message, this final message about how to be confident in uncertain times. And it's not so much about us as the church, it's about how we can help other people be confident in uncertain times. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21 is where we're going to be at. And we're going to see what Paul is telling the church in Corinth about how to live a contagious life, where we're representatives of Christ, that people are drawn to that. Verse 20 is our key verse. It says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So as we walk through this text today, I want us to see four words or four actions that we as the church we as Christians, when we live that out, we create a contagious walk in Christ that people say, I, I, want, I want what you have. I, I want to see how we can make a difference. Would you say that you want your life to make a difference? You want your life to make a difference? I, I think most of us desire that. I, I think the day when, we, when our funeral comes, we would love for people to be able to say, you made a difference in my life. The question is, what kind of difference do you want to make? I mean, you may be a school teacher making a difference. You may be an athletic coach, you're making a difference. You may be a professor or, or something where you're making a difference in people's lives, but ultimately the difference I desire, and I hope the difference that you would desire, is that you help somebody know Jesus Christ. Is that not what we're supposed to be doing? That's the goal of the church, and so Paul says, here's how you do that. First of all, he says you've got to be transparent. Transparency. We should be transparent about our intentions to evangelize, to win the law. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, he says, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. He says, since we know what it is to fear the Lord. Three times the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A relationship with God begins with respecting Him as creator and ruler of the universe. Having an almighty respect to say, He's God, He's the Creator, He's the Ruler. And a relationship with God begins there. And as you come to know God's love, that perfect love casts out all fear. But all relationships with God start with, okay, He's the Creator of the universe. I have that respect and that honor. There's always respect and authority over God in your life. And that's where we should be walking. And Paul writes, we know what it is to fear the Lord. What he's saying is, I understand what it means to have a respect, to have an honor, to allow God to be the authority in my life. What he's saying is we respect God as the sovereign ruler over the universe, that he's sovereign, that he's in control, and that what he says goes, and I'm one of his children, and so I want to obey what he tells me to do. We value Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for our sins. We honor the Bible as God's Word, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We appreciate the difference that His presence in our life makes. And when we come to those points and we come to that understanding, we say we want other people to know that as well. And since we know it is a fear of the Lord, Paul says it's our job just to persuade men. And when he uses the word men, it's not meaning like just men. It means men and women. It means mankind. It means grandma and grandpa. It means son and daughter. It means friend and neighbor. It means coworker. It means our job is to be people who persuade. Now, the word persuade doesn't mean force. Because you know and I know, there's no way I can force somebody else to love Jesus. There's no way I can force somebody else to say, I'm choosing Jesus. But Paul says that we are to persuade, which means to convince or to influence. 
which means my goal and your goal, our job, is that we are to convince or to influence people towards Jesus. Now, the world doesn't understand that. Matter of fact, the world that we live in says to us, why are you Christians always trying to persuade people that you are right? Or the world that we live in says, why are you trying to proselytize people from other religions to believe the way you do? Or the world we live in says, why are you imposing your values on other, your values on other people? Just let people alone. The challenge with that is this. There's two reasons why we want to persuade people to follow Jesus Christ. If God is sovereign in your life, if God is the master, if God is your creator, God is the one who you say, I submit my life to, and you want Him to direct your life, and there's two reasons. The first is, He commanded us to. Because Jesus said, go into all the world. Go into all the world. Make disciples. If we respect Him, then we want to obey His command. We say, well, I want to pick that up. And if His command is, I'm supposed to go into all the world, that means I've got to be a mouthpiece for Jesus Christ. The second is this. It's just human nature to share good news when you have it. Is it not? I mean, how much you you scan social media, how much are people sharing good news? When someone comes across the latest diet thing that worked, they say, oh my goodness, I lost all kinds of weight. You need to try this drink or you need to do this program. You say, I want to tell other people about it. Or whenever you buy a product and you say, well, I bought this product and this product was absolutely wonderful, you tell everybody about it. If your life has really met Jesus Christ, He's really making a difference, then we should want to tell that good news. We should want to let other people know what Christ is doing in my life. We know what it is to fear the Lord. We know that the Lord has cured us of sin, that has conquered the grave and given us a meaningful life. And so when we understand that, we say, I want to share it with other people. Now, if you don't share it, if you're not willing to speak the name of Jesus, I think one of two things are happening. You either don't believe it or you just don't care about people. And that's what Paul's telling us in the text today. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is Savior? Has He really changed your life? If He is, are you telling other people? And if you're not, do you really care? He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Acts 26 relates that Paul was summoned before King Agrippa and asked to defend himself. Summoned before King Agrippa and asked to defend himself. Paul, you're stirring up all kinds of trouble speaking about Jesus and this idea of resurrection. And Paul stood on the witness stand and told how he believed in Jesus until the risen Christ, how he didn't believe in Jesus until the risen Christ had met him on the road to Damascus and he shared his story, his account about how his life was changed. Paul looked straight at Agrippa and he said, the king is familiar with these things because it was not done in a corner. Then he asked, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He said, I know you do. And Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? What did Paul say? I, and Paul, Paul didn't back up and say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you misunderstood me, King Agrippa. I'm not trying to persuade you to be a Christian. Your religion is good enough, and whatever works for you works for you, and whatever works for me works for me, King Agrippa, go on about your way. That's not what Paul did. Paul replied and said, short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul didn't fake it. Paul's standing before the court, and he says, King Agrippa, I want you to know Jesus. Not only you know Jesus, I want everybody who's listening right now to know Jesus. And he didn't sugarcoat that. He didn't back down from that. He says, I don't like these chains. Can we get them off, basically? But he didn't pretend. 
He didn't try to sneak up on King Agrippa and go, ha, let me try to trick you into knowing Jesus. He did everything he could to persuade or to convince King Agrippa, you need Jesus, and all you people are in a courtroom who are hearing this, you need Jesus. We need to follow that kind of example. And that was, that's what Paul was bringing out to the church in Corinth. Don't pretend. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't try to disguise the danger or sugarcoat the message. Let's be very bold and courageous. We're definitely trying to win people to Christ. That's the mission of Centerpoint Christian Church. Our mission starts with connect. Connect people to Jesus. i got to tell you, the things we do around here, that's the number one goal. How do we help people to connect with Jesus as their Lord and Savior? As their king. What, we're doing kids camp. You guys been hearing about that? We've been promoting kids camp, talking about kids camp. You know why we do kids camp? We want children to come to know Jesus. You know why we offer youth group on Sunday night and have teenagers here? We want them to come to know Jesus. You know why we have growth groups? We want people to know Jesus. Why do we have church on Sundays? We want people to know Jesus. And if we're not about that, we might as well close our doors. Because that's the message of the gospel. That's the message that Jesus gave to us. That's the message that Paul was lifting up and saying, make sure you're keeping ain't number one priority the number one priority. The problem is too many times we mask ourselves. See, in order to be contagious, Christians must be transparent. We must be real, not just in our tensions, but in our behavior. See, what Paul says is what we are is plain to God and hopefully to you. He says we're playing to God because God knows our hearts. God knows our behavior. God knows our actions. But we need to be playing to other people to say, I'm broken. I need a Savior. Some people say, well, you're a wimp or you need a helper like that. To say, yes, I absolutely do. One girl, I think, kind of communicated this in a letter that she wrote to her mom. She said, our daughter, an Army sergeant stationed at Fort Worth, Georgia, called us during an intensive leadership training course that required her to spend six weeks at a forest encampment under Spartan conditions. Mom, I've met someone here I'd like to know better, is what she said. But we aren't allowed to wear makeup, so he has no idea what I really look like. Stop and think about that for a moment. Sometimes we're that way. Sometimes we want to put the mask on. We want to put on the pretending. We're so accustomed wearing masks, we think it's normal to appear prettier or richer or younger or more successful or more intelligent than we really are. But there's something attractive. There is something contagious. There is something about a person who is authentic with no pretense and no errors about them, and they're just real to say, yes, I'm broken, I need help, but I have a helper, and his name is Jesus. People look for that honesty. We need to take the mask off. See, when we're transparent about our weaknesses, and yet the world senses an authentic relationship with God, the balance makes Christianity so contagious. There's a second word that Paul encourages towards. That's intensity. See, we want to make Christianity contagious. We must be intense in our efforts to represent the truth. Look at the text in verses 13 and 14. If we are out of our mind... It is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. That's the driving verse between our campaign, our compelled campaign that we've been on the last three years to pay down $100,000 of debt and add 4,000 square foot to this building to make room for student and children's ministry. And you probably received an update this week as we sent out our financial reports. And just, uh, our financial treasurer, Stephen Horn, was sharing about where that's at. That verse drives us because we're compelled to reach families and families with kids and families that have young people and teenagers 
That's the driving verse. See, the one characteristic that is consistently present in any motivator of people is intensity. Someone who has a passion. Emerson observed every great and commanding movement in the annals of the world is the triumph of enthusiasm. Where's your enthusiasm at with Christ? See, enthusiasm enables people to overcome obstacles. Enthusiasm is contagious. It inspires and it motivates others. Enthusiasm doesn't necessarily, though, mean loud and means boisterous. It does, not, it does mean energetic. It does mean intense. It does mean focused. It does mean passionate. When people look at you, is there an enthusiasm that comes out of you? Is there an intensity that comes out of you because of your walk in Christ? And they see in you, you know what, there's something different about you. You don't have to be a rah-rah, cheerleader-type person, but people have to sense an intensity about you that inspires, you, inspires them. We've seen these kind of examples around us. One right here in our own city, Coach Cal. How does he get players from all over the country to come here want to play basketball for him? There's intensity about that guy. You watch him in interviews after a game. Watch him as in interviews on television. Could you imagine Coach Cal comes sitting in your living room? I think I'd be like, yeah, I want to go play ball for you. And not only that, he doesn't focus on what the team needs. He focuses on what they need and what they want and what's their desire to get to the NBA. And he says, I'll help you get to the NBA. And in helping them, the team succeeds. There's an intensity. Donald Trump, like him or leave him. Vote for him or don't vote for him. I have an opinion. I won't share it in a sermon. You want to know, talk one-on-one, I'd be glad to share. But Donald Trump, why is he creating such a movement and a passion across our society? I think it's because he's such an intense person. He's such an intense person that he's motivating people to say, get behind me and vote for me. Martha Stewart, she's motivated thousands to watch her television program, to read her books. Now, she's not a loud person. But she's intense, and she gets awful excited about her baking and her homemaking, doesn't she? And she's made millions because she's intense about what happens inside of the home. Arnold Toynbee wrote, Apathy can only be overcome by enthusiasm, and enthusiasm can only be aroused by an ideal which takes the imagination by storm. That's the kind of intensity that we need in seeking to make a difference in our society. That word enthusiasm comes from two Greek words, in and theos, which is dwelling in God. See, you cannot be enthusiastic, cannot understand the gospel, be intense, unless you're walking close with Jesus. read an article this week in a blog talking about the state of church in America. And the guy's premise was this, and I believe it to be true. He said 90% of churches in America, there's about 450,000 churches in America, said 90% of them are either plateaued or declining. 90%. I shared this article with our elders Wednesday, uh, Thursday morning in our prayer time and it said the other 10% are growing basically by convert, not by conversion growth, but by transfer growth, by people who say, well, I'm tired of that church, I want to go over to that church. And the guy's premise in the article is basically the church of America is growing very, very slowly, if it's growing at all. I looked at our elders and I said, guys, I said, we're in that 90%. We're kind of plateaued. I can't say we're going backward. I said, but some of our transfer growth has been, some of our growth has been because of transfer. And the question you have to ask yourself is why is that happening in churches across America? I don't know all the reasons why, but I think I know one. Because too many of us are very lukewarm in our faith. See, there's nothing intense coming out of us because 
we walk through our daily activities and our business of life, and we set God aside. We went through this whole journey of being transformed this, earlier this year and said, so let's pursue Christ. And as you pursue Christ, that's when transformation happens. But not only as you pursue Christ does transformation happen, when you pursue Christ, He puts an intensity inside of you that you just live for Christ and other people will start to recognize that and they'll say, I want what you have. I think the reason why the church in America is at a plateau or at a major decline is because too many of us Christians are just walking through life enjoying our lukewarmness. And I'll tell you, look what, G- what the Word says about that in Revelation 3.16. Jesus said, lukewarm Christians make them sick. And He said, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. <clears throat> the call of the Gospel is that we are the mouthpiece for Christ. The Bible says we're to never lose our zeal in Romans chapter 12, verse 11. It says, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I think one reason why American churches have plateaued is because the spiritual fervor has become nil. And we're in some great times with some great opportunities. See, when sin is running rampant and it's on a race, then so is God's grace. And we have an opportunity to live that as long as we pursue Christ. Paul was so intense that Governor Festus said he lost his mind. Your great learning is driving you insane is what he said. Has anybody ever accused you of that? Has everybody said to you, what are you doing? You're going to go do what? That makes no sense. And when you're talking about that and you're saying, I'm going to go do that for Jesus Christ, and they tell you it makes no sense, then you say, all right, God, now we're getting somewhere. And look what Paul says. Paul says, I'm not insane, Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The the message paraphrase of verse 13, 14 says, if I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted only serious, I did it for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything I do. Does that describe you? Does that describe us? that He has the first and last word in everything I do? Do you wake up in the morning, no matter where you're going to work, whether you're a waiter or a waitress, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're a trash collector, whether you're a professor, whether you work on the assembly line, whether you're working in the court system, whether you're a police officer, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a homeschool teacher, whatever you do, do you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, what do you want from me today? Lord, how can I speak for you today? God, how can I be your ambassador are you intense like that see intense christians may appear to the world to be out of their mind may appear to be a little bit crazy but if the message is true the christian is the one who is in their right mind who's living for the lord we can't be cavalier with the love of christ we can't be haphazard with the love of christ because the love of christ compels us to share the message with intensity with all that we are. See, intensity should come automatically if we really believe the message is true. We don't need a training program. We don't need to be taught anything more. We have such intensity, we can't keep it from coming outside of us. Maybe this example would share with you what I'm talking about. If you're at a restaurant with your family, you get up and go to the restroom, and on the way back, you're walking by the kitchen, and as you look by the kitchen, you look in and you see several employees who are in there frantically trying to put a big fire out that's going on inside the kitchen, what would you do? You would not say, now hold on a minute, give me a training program and someone show me how do I clear this restaurant. You would run through that hallway and out to the restaurant and say, get out of here, there's a fire! 
Now, some people may be disturbed as you do that. What are you doing? No, there's a fire. Get up from your table. Leave. Take your children. Get out of here. So people start grabbing their stuff. Don't worry about your stuff. There's a serious fire. Now get on out of here. That may be disturbing to some people. They wouldn't want to hear it at first, but if you're true and it's really happening, what are they going to do? They're going to be so thankful that you spoke up. They're going to be so thankful that you chased them out of that restaurant, rescuing them and their family. Now, if you're just playing a joke, then you'd be seen as obnoxious and probably be arrested. But isn't that what's going on in life right now? See, if it was true and you didn't open your mouth and you just walked over and told your family, hey, honey, kids, let's go. There's a fire in the kitchen. Let's get out of here. And you let everybody else alone, then that would be seen as unloving and immoral. But what would you do? You would rescue everybody in the restaurant. See, I guarantee you would not go down that hallway, walk by the kitchen, see the fire, and think, hmm, hey, folks, i got to tell you something. There's a fire in the kitchen. You might want to grab your plates and grab your kids. Let's go outside of the grass, green grass outside, sit down and eat. You would be intense about clearing that restaurant, would you not? And you would do it automatically, and you would do it quickly. See, the analogy of the fire... Somewhat holds true. Your mom or dad or your friend, your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, they need you to be intense about sharing what it means to be rescued by Jesus Christ. See, the analogy of fire doesn't hold true, though, in two aspects. First of all, there's probably more time to make a decision just a few seconds. There may be months, there may be years, there may be a, a long time before they face judgment. But we still need to be intense because we don't know when their time is coming. Secondly, you're not maybe not be the first one to warn your friend or family member. In most cases, people have heard the, the warning and they disregarded it. They scoff at those who stand up and shout fire. The people who carry signs, repent or perish, or stand on a street corner and warn about hell. They aren't too effective in persuading people to come to Christ. But when you have a relationship with somebody and you love somebody and you care about somebody and you want to tell them the truth of the gospel, they're much more open to hearing what you have to say. Let me ask you something. When's the last time you've actually wept over somebody who you know who doesn't know Christ? When's the last time you've actually shed tears over somebody who you know their eternity is destined to be a life totally separated from God because they don't know Jesus Christ? You say, why do you ask that question? Well, Jesus did that. Jesus wept over Jerusalem's rebellious spirit. And Paul did that. He told the Ephesians elders, he said, remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. When's the last time your heart has been that broken you, you want to tell somebody about Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul said, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. Transparency, intensity, and third is the word is perceptivity. We can make Christianity contagious if we're perceptive about the potential in people. Paul says in verse 16 and 17, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, a new has come. What you know to be true and I know to be true is that the world evaluates us by what's going on on the outside, external situations. If you're rich, 
you're good looking, if you're famous, the world value, values you. Otherwise, you're not worth much. The world ignores you. Verse 12 says that the world takes pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. And Paul admits that he had dismissed Jesus as Messiah because he didn't have, have impressive worldly credentials. See, if you and I are going to make Christianity contagious, it's important that we see people as the Lord sees them. The world looks at the externals, but we need to be looking at the heart of people. The world sees possessions. We should see potential. That's what was so wonderful about Jesus. He looked at people for what they could become rather than what they were or what they had been. Who would ever guess that vacillating Simon Peter would become a rock-like leader? That the persecutor Saul would become the preacher Paul, that the demon-possessed Mary Magdalene would be the first to see the resurrected Jesus, that the proud intellectual Nicodemus would be humbly bore again, or the cheating tax collector Zacchaeus would host Jesus for dinner. Who would have saw that? Probably not us. Because we don't typically look at people that way. What about the woman at the well? She comes to draw water. Others would have seen her as an immoral woman who had been married five times, living now with a man whom she was not married. She was a Samaritan. She was a foreigner to Jesus, one who practiced a different religion. But Jesus saw her as something more, and He asked her, could I have a drink? Can you help me out with something? Basically, I'm saying, would you help me? And he broke down the conversational barrier. He led her to a belief in the Messiah. She went and told everyone in the city what had happened. The village came out to see Jesus for themselves. Others saw a degenerate woman. Jesus saw an effective evangelist. When you look at maybe your unbelieving spouse, when you look at your children who have walked away from the Lord or not walking with the Lord, when you look at your neighbor, when you look at your co-worker, when you look at the people who you're working with who maybe have tattoos up and down their arms, maybe have some piercings in places you would never imagine having piercings, have political views different than your political views. Maybe their language is so colorful that you think they came right off the sailor ship. When you look at people and you see them, do you see the potential or do you see them, oh, is that that person? Can't really interact with that kind of person. See, the Pharisees saw the externals. He eats with tax collectors and the sinners. But Jesus saw them as forgiven disciples and as transformed friends. How do you see people that you associate with on a regular basis? Do you categorize them by the externals or do you categorize them by their heart? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Rather you're a coach or rather you're a teacher. Maybe you're a youth sponsor. Maybe you're just a dad or just a mom. Whatever role it is, it's important we see people not from a worldly point of view, but we see their heart. We see their heart and we want their heart to be connected with Jesus. We see the potential and do what we can to make, it, make uh, uh, Christ attractive to them. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Truth be told, if we are willing to look inside, we all have the old in us. What was your old life? Were you an agnostic? Were you an alcoholic? Were you a liar? Were you a cheat? Full of filthy language or self-pride? What's your old life? See, somewhere along the lines, somebody saw you for what you could become and invited you to church or they introduced you to Jesus Christ. And if your life has been changed, is it not possible for other people? 
That's what Paul wants us to hear this morning. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul's saying there's potential in each and every person that we have contact with. One last word, and it's the word of ministry. Verses 18 and 19, all this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's a big word that basically says He's given us the ministry to help people connect with Jesus, to come to a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. Let's say you have a close friend who are in some deep financial trouble, and you know they're in deep financial trouble, and they've opened up their life to you, and they start sharing with you, and they're repentant of what they've done. And as they share with you, they're, they're letting you know, listen, we're about $50,000 in debt. We're about ready to lose our house and lose our cars, and we're not sure what to do. And you come alongside them, and you want to encourage them. And in that relationship, you have another friend who's extremely wealthy, and somehow you share that conversation with this wealthy friend. A wealthy friend says, I want to help out. And that wealthy friend says, listen, I'm going to write a check for $100,000 to your friend. I want you to tell them, use $50,000 to pay down the debt. And I want them to use the other $50,000 to put a checking account to get them going for the future. Would you deliver that check to them? Would you take that check to them? You absolutely would, wouldn't you? Now, you might be thinking, how can I get 10% of that? But most likely, you'd be like, I'm taking that check. Matter of fact, the t- moment they hand you the check, you may be like, hey, good having lunch with you. I'm out of here because you're jumping in your car and you're flying down the road to get that check to your friend and say, look what happened. I have a friend who wanted to help you out. You're out of debt now. And now we got some money to get things straight and take care of life. You wouldn't be able to wait to share that good news with them. Neither would I. I'd be so excited to be able to deliver that kind of check. You know, people are under a huge debt of sin. They can never pay it back. And Satan is eager to collect what is due him, and that's death, and that's eternal separation. But God has offered to pay that debt and the full richness of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. And not only will He pay the debt, but He imputes His righteousness to our account, and so we become the righteousness of Christ. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's your ministry and my ministry to bring those that are at odds with God to peace and to reconcile Him. What a great assignment. We get a chance to carry the check, so to speak. We get to carry the check that sets people free. And the question is, are we just holding on to it? Do we see it as an assignment? Do we see it as a great message? Do we see it as an obligation? Or do you see that as a great privilege? God has given us a privilege to be able to carry that kind of message. It's a joyous ministry, and God communicates His message through us, and that's why it's important that we communicate the gospel clearly and accurately. We're ambassadors. We're not negotiators. We represent the king of the universe while we live in this foreign country. Even though some may not receive His word, we must share it accurately and not edit it. See, we understand that ministry. We do everything we can to represent Him. We understand that it's called, we say everything I do is for Him. We won't influence people by political power or intimidating boycotts. Christianity becomes contagious when we regard it as a ministry. A ministry means we care for one another. We give attention to one another. A minister is one who, like Jesus, comes and serves not to be served. 
Paul said in verse 15, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, when a Christian lives unselfishly and they genuinely care for other people, there's an undeniable attraction that is irresistible. And church, I must warn you, Today's world is standing up and telling people you're wrong because you think this or believe that or you do this or you behave in this kind of behavior doesn't work. It doesn't work. What works is when you come alongside somebody without a judgmental spirit, you come alongside somebody and you show them the love of Christ by serving them. You show them the love of Christ by loving them. And then when they have a thing or, or need in life and you can come alongside and say, I'm here to help you, you point them towards Jesus. And may I ask you, church, we've got to stop doing something. Stop pointing fingers at people on Facebook, social media. When we post all the stuff about how horrible the world is and how horrible you are if you believe in this or you do that or you participate in this kind of behavior, all that looks like is we're pointing a finger about how bad you are and people are not going to hear that message from us. Many of you know my father-in-law, Mike, and here today, sitting in the back of the room, and had a chance to share with him through the years, and he shared about his battle with alcoholism when he was a young man, and he said, you know, it wasn't because people pointed the finger at me. They introduced me to Jesus, and I met Jesus, and Jesus changed my life. That's our job, folks. We introduce people to Jesus, and let Jesus do the work of cleaning up their soul and their heart and their addictions and their problems and their challenges, but too many times when we point the finger, all people do is they want to argue back or they put their fingers in their ears, and they're not going to hear us. We do that by serving them in ministry. Martin Burnham talked about her last week. The martyred missionary in the Philippines said a year before his death, a farewell meeting, he said, I wasn't called to be a missionary. I wasn't called to the Philippines. I was just called to follow Christ, and that's what I'm doing. And during Burnham's captivity, even though they were hungry, Martin and his wife, Gracia, shared their food with the younger members of the militant soldiers holding them captive. Many of them were young people who were just carrying guns. And they gave them food because they saw that they were hungry because they saw their ministry was the ministry of reconciliation. I'm going to serve these young people who right now are holding me even as a prisoner. Dana Curry and Heather Mercer, missionaries in Afghanistan, they were asked that they went to Afghanistan because they had special talents. And Dana said, no, we not only didn't have special gifts, we didn't even have Bible training. But she said, all it takes is two hands to serve and one heart to give. Maybe the Lord won't lead you to the Philippines or to Afghanistan. He might not even lead you out of Kentucky or Lexington. But He's calling you to be the mouthpiece, to live a contagious life for Christ right here, right where you're planted right now. He calls us to be His ambassador to this world and to be as contagious as possible right where we live. That means we're transparent in our intent and our behavior. That means we're intensity in our attitude. That means we're perceptive about the positive potential in people that Christ has placed in them. And that means a ministry of service and love. So needed in our world today. We live in a world that is uncertain. People are fearful. The foundations of this earth are being shaken. We need the assurance and the hope that only Jesus Christ can be. And you and I can make that difference when we live a contagious life for Christ. Paul said, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you. Paul said, we, I, I want to change that wording. Church, I implore you. 
I implore you, if people who believe in the gospel, the message of Jesus, be reconciled to God and help others to be reconciled to God. Bow your heads with me. Father God, thank you for the message of the cross. God, help us to carry it well. God, help us to be people that live a contagious Christian life, that are transparent, that see our ministry, that we're intense about our walk with you. We see our ministry of reconciliation. We understand, Lord, that you have us here to be that mouthpiece, to be the one who carries the check, that, that forgives the debt. Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see people the way you see them. Father, it blows my mind to think about the woman at the well. You crossed the sin barrier. You've crossed the economic barrier. You crossed the racial barrier so that she would know you as Savior. God, would you put that in us? Put that in us, Lord, that we would cross over any kind of barrier so that people would know Jesus as Savior. Father, would you turn a passion on in this place? Lord, to look at stats and say 90% of churches in America are plateaued or declined. They're not, they're not rescuing the lost. Lord, it breaks my heart. Father, would you help this be a place where people cross the line of faith and come to Jesus Christ and accept Him as Savior? Help us to be those kind of people, to be that kind of church. God, today I want to pray specifically, maybe there's someone in this room that needs to be reconciled to God. They need to submit their life to Christ. Would you stir in that person right now in their heart, stir in their mind, Lord, help them to cross that line of faith and accept Jesus as Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.